Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, or for the Faith Working radio show podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. Ancient Jerusalem was a walled city, and there were a number of gates providing access. Still today, the remains of the ancient city has several gates. Some are wide enough for cars and throngs of people to pass through, but others are accessed by steep, narrow stairs and are wide enough only for a single pedestrian to pass through. That's what Jesus is alluding to when he says, Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. But narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. This wasn't the first time God had set a narrow gate and difficult way before his people. He did the same thing in the Exodus. Moses himself was the narrow gate. All who believed and followed Moses were saved, and all who did not were destroyed. And it didn't matter if you were circumcised and had Abraham's blood in your veins. If you didn't believe and follow Moses, you died with the Egyptians. On the other hand, Egyptians who did believe and follow Moses, and there were many who did, were saved with Israel and became part of God's people. No doubt, everyone who left Egypt with Moses had dreams of how wonderful life was going to be away from Egypt, And they were all surprised when it turned out not to be a stroll in the park, but a march in the desert. Many who had faith enough to follow Moses out of Egypt would now turn back to Egypt in their hearts. But God didn't assign this difficult way because he enjoyed troubling people. He did it because he enjoyed saving people. As Moses would later explain in Deuteronomy, the Exodus was about getting God's people out of Egypt. The desert was about getting Egypt out of God's people. Both were necessary and for the good of God's children. All of that dramatic history was to prepare Israel and the rest of the world for Jesus, the true Moses, who would deliver from Satan, the true Pharaoh, breaking his power of death by which he kept the world enthralled through sin. So once again, this time for all the marvels, God sets forth a narrow gate and a difficult way. The narrow gate is Jesus himself. There is no other entrance onto the path of life. And if you're just drifting along with the crowd, you will end up going through the wide gate that leads to destruction. Once you enter the narrow gate through Christ, you will find that the way of life and freedom is often difficult for former slaves like us. For freedom entails responsibility, indeed the greatest responsibility of all, loving God with all that we are and our neighbor as ourselves. Thus freedom requires more than a change of circumstance. It requires a change of heart. Apart from that change of heart, we will carry our slavery with us, just as many of the ancient Israelites did. The narrow gate of conversion is about getting us out of slavery. The difficult way of trials and testing is about getting slavery out of us, all so that we can be sons and daughters of the Father 
in the full sense of the word. This is what adoption into God's family is all about. And adoption into God's family is what salvation is all about. I hope you enjoy the sermon. Thanks for listening. God the great king, God the great judge is their own father who wants them in that kind of intimate relationship with him, promises to be with them, promises to bless them, to care for them, to give them everything they need, and therefore encourages them to keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking in faith, uh, because He will take care and bless them. So He set forth this amazing uh, vision of life as it was meant to be, which He is reestablishing through His work and through the Spirit that He will give, but now as he begins to come through down the home stretch, he presses his hearers to make some decisions, some very strong decisions, and he challenges them to take action. And they're going to have to make these decisions and to take these actions, not in easy circumstances, but very difficult and challenging circumstances. So the first thing that Jesus says when he's challenging them to make decisions and take action are our words that we find here in verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. So let's ask God now to help us understand these words afresh and to apply them in the day and in the setting in which he has called us to live and walk with him. Oh God and Father, we thank you for your word as always, and we pray that you would bring it to us by the Holy Spirit, that we would understand what this meant to the original audience, what it means to your disciples through all generations, and what this specifically means for us today that we would heed Jesus' words, that we would enter by the narrow gate that leads to life. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I think the easiest way for us to try to put ourselves in the position of the disciples as they were hearing these words is <clears throat> try to imagine that as we're living here in the United States, there's all kinds of things going on, of course we're coming up, this is an election year, have many uh, issues that are going on in our culture as our culture is sliding further and further away from God. Um, there's different blips as if you were to graph the course of our country, it would go up and down. But clearly for the last uh, 100 years, the 50-yard line is shifting ever downward morally and spiritually and leftward politically. That is the way the tide is moving. Now imagine that things started getting really crazy. Now I know you may think they're already crazy, but I mean really crazy. So that following Christ, really being a Christian, believing in Him, following Him, obeying His Word, came to mean that most of the church, most of the professing Christians were going to begin to call you unchristian, call you divisive, call you unloving, call you hateful, 
engagers in hate and hate speech. And furthermore, that you were going to come to be called un-American. Imagine a situation that was so crazy where following Christ meant being called unchristian and un-American. Now that may seem far-fetched, but really if you think about it, that has occurred in a recent history in different places in, around the, the globe. It hasn't occurred here in the United States, but it could. It very well could. I'll give you one 20th century example, and that is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, the German pastor and theologian um, who came from a very prominent family in Germany. His dad was the leading psychiatrist in Germany at the time. He was a professor at the University of Berlin. And uh, he was not a believer, but he hated Freud. So there you go. Um, but uh, Dietrich's mother was a very devout and sincere uh, Christian believer, and so was Dietrich. But all the craziness of the rise of um, Hitler and the rise of the Nazis and their taking over of the German uh, uh, country and then leading into the war, all of that stuff was going on. All the, the beginning rumblings of the... Uh, seeking to exterminate the Jews and so forth, all of that was beginning to happen. And uh, Dietrich and his family were all very prescient uh, with, when these things were happening. They saw Hitler from the beginning for who he was. They saw where all of this was heading. And so Dietrich began to stand for the Christian faith and to call others within the established church, which was the German Lutheran church, to stand against these things. But the vast majority of the German church fell into ranks uh, behind Hitler and uh, the uh, Nazi party because the, the German people had been so beat down, they had been so depressed in the economy and suffered so much after uh, World War I that anybody who seemed to be a winner and is going to restore them to greatness uh, was like a Pied Piper, and that is exactly who Hitler was. And so the majority of the church fell in line behind Hitler. And so Bonhoeffer and those who were with him uh, found themselves in a position that because of their Christian faith, they were being called unchristian, divisive. And they were being called, furthermore, anti-German unpatriotic to their own country. And so there was a real definite cost to discipleship at that particular time. And if you can imagine that happening in our situation, well, this is precisely the situation that the disciples found themselves in in the first century. Jesus, as he will explain further as he goes on in his ministry, because of their faith in him, they are going to be called betrayers of God and country, betrayers of the God of Israel, betrayers of the true faith, and betrayers of Israel. All will hate them and despise them. They're going to be put out of the synagogues because of their faith, and they will be despised. Now, Jesus is preparing them for what is coming, and therefore he is telling them, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad the way that leads to destruction. There are many who go in by it. Narrow is the gate and difficult the way that leads to life. There are few who find it. 
Now, Jesus' words would have been heard in light of his claim to be the true Moses, the great Moses of whom the first Moses was just a picture. His claim to be the true Moses whom God had sent to bring about the true Exodus, the great Exodus, that didn't just deliver from a limited uh, historical form of political bondage, but which delivered the human race from its uh, throughout history bondage to the great Pharaoh, Satan himself, who rules through the power of sin and death. Now, remember that Jesus, as Matthew has shown us, Jesus, just like Moses, was delivered at birth from the slaughter of infant boys by an evil king. In this case, it was Herod. He had entered his ministry by coming through the waters of baptism, by enduring 40 days of testing in the desert. And now he has ascended the mount to preach the law to the people. So the fact that Jesus was claiming to be the true Moses sent to bring about the true exodus of God's people would have jumped out at his Jewish audience. That's the way you did things uh, within Israel. If you're claiming to bring about a new exodus, then you're going to do what John the Baptist does, and you're going to go out to the Jordan where they came into the land, and that's where you're going to begin to preach. And you see, that's why the Pharisees go out there to ask him, who are you? Because they understand this kind of speech. And so Jesus is very clearly claiming to be the new and great Moses. And the theme of the narrow gate in the difficult way was something that featured prominently in the first exodus. The narrow gate is God's exclusive way of salvation. And we see that showing up in the first exodus. Moses was the only savior. He was the only deliverer. He provided the only way of deliverance. There was no such thing as rejecting Moses and following God. And being a blood descendant of Abraham was not enough. What mattered is whether you believed God's word spoken through Moses and placed your trust and allegiance in him as God's anointed deliverer. Faith, which admired the words of Moses but didn't follow Moses, was not saving faith. All of those, both Jew and Egyptian, who believed and followed Moses were saved. And all of those who did not, whether Jew or Egyptian, perished. The difficult way was the testing of the people's faith in the desert once God led them out of Egypt. You remember there was this great victory that God led them through and he led them out and he led them through the Red Sea, all these great things. And yet then the way of discipleship, which began so glorious, ended up being something a little different, at least on the front end, than what they expected. They went without food. They went without water. Again and again, they were called upon to place their complete trust in the God who had delivered them. So... The first part of the exodus was about getting God's people out of Egypt. The second part of the exodus out in the desert was about getting Egypt out of God's people. So of those who believed Moses enough to follow him out of Egypt and through the baptismal waters of the Red Sea, there were many who would later turn back to Egypt in their hearts and who would die in the desert, for they did not count the cost of discipleship. 
and their faith and their loyalty were short-lived. They died when the difficulties mounted during the 40 years in the desert. Now, even so, as Jesus is preaching this new ultimate exodus, many who would initially believe him and follow him through the waters of baptism would later turn back when difficulties mounted during the 40-year period between Pentecost and the destruction of Jerusalem. What is going to happen is that Herod's magnificent temple is going to be completed in the 60s, and there is going to be further and further, there's an initial great rush of people turning to Christ and believing in Him. You remember some 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost itself. Everything seems wonderful, but as time goes along, more and more are going to turn away. Christians are going to be kicked out of the synagogues, and which didn't mean uh, that you go down the road to the next synagogue. It doesn't mean that you leave the Methodist synagogue and just go down to the Baptist synagogue or the Presbyterian synagogue. To be put out of the synagogue meant you lost your whole life as you knew it. You lost all your connections. You would lose many of your extended family members. You would lose all your friends. You would, in, in many cases, lose your livelihood because nobody would do business with you. So it, it meant something. It meant everything that you knew about life, every way that you could envision life being, the good life as you could see it, was gone. And you did not know what life held forth. When you looked down the road, you saw nothing but darkness. That is what was happening. And then Jewish nationalism would fan to flames and would end up in the mid-60s in a revolt against Rome. And everybody who didn't join into that was considered to be an, an enemy of God and an enemy of Israel. And this would continue to advance until ultimately the legions of Rome would come and utterly destroy Jerusalem. Now, that is what is going to happen, and Jesus knows that it's coming. He's warning his listeners to count the cost of discipleship, for the gate is narrow and the road is difficult. And he's going to repeat this warning to his disciples in chapters 24 and 25 in great detail, which is known as the Olivet Discourse. And, of course, the apostles will later issue their own warnings often likening the disciples to the Israelites who followed Moses into the desert, embracing them that many would fall away as difficulties increased with the Jewish revolt against Rome approaching. And Jesus knows that tragically most of Israel would continue on her current path, which was characterized by covenant presumption. We're the descendants of Abraham. God has to save us. And superficial hypocritical spirituality, that is the broad way that leads to destruction. So then what exactly is Jesus alluding to, though, when he tells his disciples, enter by the narrow gate, not through the wide gate? Well, ancient Jerusalem was a walled city, and there were a number of gates of different sizes that entered into the city. Still today, the remains of the ancient city has a number of different gates. Some are wide enough for cars to drive through and for throngs of people to pass through. But other gates are accessed only by steep 
narrow stairs, and uh, they are very narrow. Only a single pedestrian can go through at a time. And that is what Jesus is alluding to when he talks about the narrow gate and the wide gate. So what exactly then is he saying? Well, let's consider first of all what he is not saying. First of all, he is not saying that only a few people will be saved throughout history. Jesus himself said, Many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Many will come, he will say. He said that the kingdom is like a mustard seed, which begins very small, apparently insignificant, apparently powerless, but which grows to be the largest plant in the garden. He said that the kingdom is like leaven, again, which begins, what can a little pinch of leaven do? What threat does it pose? But he says it's like leaven because it's alive and it spreads throughout the whole bread dough and it transforms the whole lump. With these parables, Jesus will echo the Old Testament passages such as Daniel chapter 2, which speaks of the kingdom as a small stone which enters the world. But it grows to overcome the kingdoms of this world and it becomes a great mountain which fills the whole earth. Or Isaiah's prophecy that the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So all of those things are true. Jesus is not saying only a few people are going to be saved down through history. What Jesus is saying is reflected in the second part of his statement in Matthew chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. Many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That's the first thing he says. The second thing he says is this, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. The sons of the kingdom, God's covenant people, uh, the Israelites, those who should gladly receive the kingdom through Christ will end up rejecting Christ and will be cast out of the kingdom. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says, There are many who go the way of destruction, and there are few who find the way of life. Of God's covenant people in the first century, that would be true. What is he not saying when he talks about the narrow gate and the difficult way? Well, Jesus is not saying that every generation of disciples faces exactly the same crisis as the first century disciples or the same crisis that Dietrich Bonhoeffer faced as the Nazis rose to power. He's not trying to say that. That's not true. Not every generation of disciples faces that exact kind of crisis. And we should not try to manufacture such a crisis. Jesus is also not telling us that the way of life is nothing but hardship. And we should not try to make it such. We should not try to make the path of discipleship artificially difficult and narrow, as some down through church history have done. When we do that, we end up being like the Pharisees, who Jesus said laid heavy burdens on God's people. He said the Pharisees bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on men's shoulders. And Jesus saw that as a problem. In contrast, Jesus said that his yoke was light and his burden easy. Well, which is it? Is it a light yoke and an easy burden? Or is it a narrow gate 
in a difficult way? Well, it's both. Jesus' path is the path to freedom. Jesus' path is a path that is free of all the man-made arbitrary weights and burdens that we tend to lay on ourselves and on other people to show our spirituality. Paul talks about that in the book of Colossians. He said there's all kinds of ways of religiosity, all kinds of burdens you can take on yourself, all kinds of ways that you can make yourself suffer, that you can have other people look at you and go, oh, how humble, oh, how spiritual this person is. Look how much they suffer for God. Look how much they bear. And Paul says that's false religion. It's false humility. It's false spirituality. There's nothing true about it. And so Jesus lifts all of that off of us. His yoke is light. His burden is easy because it is the true path of life. When you come to Christ, for the first time, you begin to swim with the current. For the first time, you begin to move in a certain way, you could say downhill on the easy path. But the problem is this. You're so used to going the other way, And there's so many people going the other way that you can often feel like you're swimming against the stream when you're actually you're swimming with the stream. When you come to Christ and you begin to live according to his word for the first time, you begin to live with the grain of the universe because this is God's world. And those who do not walk according to his word, life is very hard for them. The Bible likens them to people who walk around in the dark. They don't even know what they're stumbling over. And when we come to Christ, we begin to walk with the grain for the first time. But again, we find ourselves often in situations where we're not only going against our own instincts, our old instincts and our, own ha- our old habits, but we're going against throngs of other people, which can make it many times seem very difficult. So when it comes to arbitrary burdens and things which have nothing really to do with believing and obeying God, Jesus' burden is easy and his yoke light. But there is still a cost to discipleship. It involves real issues of faith, real issues of loyalty and commitment, real issues of obedience and perseverance, not bogus issues of false humility and man-made religiosity. So that is not what Jesus is saying here. Many Christians down through the the ages have thought we have to make the Christian life narrow. We have to make the Christian life hard and difficult. Uh, Brothers and sisters, we don't have to make anything. Jesus is giving us an indicative. He's describing what is, not telling us to make it so. Whenever we try to make it so, we are going seriously astray. Well, what is Jesus saying then? The first thing he is saying is don't follow the crowd. Don't follow the crowd. If you come to Jerusalem and you just follow the crowd, you will end up going through the wide gate like everybody else. Why do we like to follow the crowd? Well, it's easy. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to make a decision to follow the crowd. You just kind of get carried along. You shuffle along. We also like to follow the crowd because it makes us feel included. We're part of the group. It makes us feel accepted. And it also makes us feel normal. And we all want to feel included, accepted, and normal. Nobody likes to feel weird. 
and, and being part of the crowd that's going to go in through the wide gate, it makes us feel all of those things. So to not follow the crowd, you have to do something about it. If you want to follow the crowd, you don't need to do anything. You'll just get carried along. If you want to not follow the crowd, you have to take action. You must take action. And what action must you take if you don't want to go in the wide gate, but you want to go up the narrow stairs to the narrow gate, which only one person can go through at a time? Well, first of all, you have to look around. You have to recognize what's going on, and you have to decide to go a different way. You have to look for the narrow gate. If you don't look for it, you're never going to see it, much less uh, go up to it. And you must break away from the crowd and go a different way. Now, there's a cost involved in all of this. But notice that it's not enough to just be contrarian. Being contrarian, in other words, if everybody's going this way, I'm going to go a different way. There are people like that. I'm kind of like that with Facebook. I have it. But that doesn't mean I'm entering in the narrow gate. The fact that I don't have Facebook. Um, <laughs> although my children have told me that I do not exist because I, I don't have Facebook. Okay. So it's not just a matter of being contrarian because contr- being contrarian may take you away from the broad gate, but it's not going to take you in the narrow gate. So the point is not to be different for difference sake or to be obstinate for obstinate sake, but to believe and obey Christ. That is the point. And that's what Jesus is getting to here. Jesus himself is the narrow gate. He says at other places in his ministry, I am the door. He says he is the, the sheep door by which the sheep come in and out and find pastor. As he says in John chapter 14, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus himself is the narrow gate. And the narrowness is the exclusiveness of God's truth, the exclusiveness of God's salvation. It is the one way, the only way part of Jesus' message and therefore of the Christian message. Hear how exclusive this is. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. As Peter preached in the book of Acts, there is no salvation in any other, nor is there any other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Or as Jesus put it to Nicodemus, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So Jesus himself is the narrow gate, and Jesus demands absolute loyalty. In Matthew 16, he says, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, we can't just add Jesus to our personal pantheon. We must commit to him supremely. And when it comes to our ultimate loyalty, Jesus permits no rival. If anyone comes to me, he says, and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, 
He cannot be my disciple. Now, that's, that's very strong language. But you have to remember how the Bible uses love and hate. Remember what it says of, of Jacob. It says that, um, that he, he loved Rachel and he hated Leah. Now, he didn't hate Leah. He loved Leah. But Leah was his wife, and she was not in first place. So for a wife to not be in first place, for a wife to be in second place to another woman, is for her to be hated. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. It is Jesus himself, it is God himself who is to be first place in our life. And if anything else is put in first place, then we hate God. And so in comparison to God, when it comes to our ultimate loyalty and commitment in life, God goes there and nobody else, not even ourselves. Notice Jesus says you must hate your own life by comparison as well. So it's this exclusive nature of God, the exclusive nature of Christ as Savior and Lord, and the exclusive nature of the gospel that gives offense to fallen man. If you take away the exclusivity, no one would stumble over the stumbling block of Jesus Christ. Nobody would be offended if you just remove the exclusivity. If you simply said that Jesus was one way, that Christianity was one truth, that there were more than one way to God. If you make it inclusive, you just uh, you will be accepted without any problem. And this is typically the reason why Christians are ostracized and persecuted down through history. It's the exclusivity. If the Christians in the early centuries of the church had simply said, Jesus is a new way, Jesus provides a new and better religious experience, Jesus will add meaning to your life, but you could blend Jesus in with all the other Roman and Greek gods that were mixed into Roman life back in those days, then they would have been embraced. If they had said that Jesus is a Lord, He is a higher power, He can help you in your life, everything would have been fine. But they were accused of being what? Of being divisive, of dividing up society, of causing problems, of being antisocial and anti-Roman, because the Roman way was the inclusivist way. And what provided the social and cultural glue was saying that Caesar is Lord. Have as many gods as you want. But when it comes to the public square, when it comes to political life, when it comes to public life, it is Caesar who is Lord. That is what everybody agreed on. That was the common ground until the Christians come along and say, there is only one God, the true and living God. And he's not part of this cosmos like we are. He's other than us. He's different than us. He's different from the creation. And he has given one Savior, his only Son, who is Jesus Christ. And Jesus alone is Lord. That is what got the Christians killed in the arena. People often complain, and on the face of it, it seems like they're reasonable. It seems like we're the unreasonable ones who insist on these exclusive things. Why can't there be more than one way? Why should there only be one way? That's too narrow. It's too constrictive. But as G.K. Chesterton pointed out, that's like somebody complaining 
that they cannot enter Eden by more than one way at once. If you have a way that's open standing right in front of you, why would you complain that you can't enter four ways at the same time? The point is that Christ is the way, and that's not the problem. The problem is that people will not enter. As Jesus said in John 5, you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. So the problem is not that there's not enough light in the world. The problem is that men love darkness rather than light, as Jesus said. This is the condemnation. He didn't say the condemnation is that people have no light. He said the condemnation is that light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil and they don't want to change. So Jesus himself is the narrow gate. And when we come to the narrow gate, when we come to Jesus, we must enter. It's not enough to come up to the gate. It's not enough to lead the wide way, leave the wide way. You must enter in the narrow gate. It's not enough to acknowledge Jesus or to admire Jesus or to respect Jesus or to esteem Jesus. You must enter Christ. And that's what true faith does. Faith enters. Faith doesn't simply admire. It enters. It goes through. Faith makes a commitment. It entrusts. And one of the things about the narrow gate is that you can't carry much through it. Only one person can go through at a time, and you can't bring a bunch of stuff with you. You want to go through the narrow gate, you need to leave your stuff. Now, that doesn't mean you get rid of everything, but what it does mean is this. All your idols that you've been carrying around with you to help you get through this life, the idolatry of yourself, the idolatry, whatever it is, those idols, they won't fit. You can't bring them through the gate. An example of this is Jesus dealing with the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19. He wants to know what is the way of life. Jesus says, well, you have the commandments. Keep the commandments. And he says, oh, I've done all of that from my youth. So what do I still lack? And said, well, Jesus says, okay, well, if you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have and give to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Now, it's not that Jesus is making normative an absolute vow of poverty. But Jesus is dealing with a particular person here. He's dealing with a particular young man. And he's saying to this young man who was very wealthy, when you come through the narrow gate, your idol won't fit. And your idol is your wealth. So drop it. Drop it and follow me. Come through the narrow gate. Drop your idol and come through the narrow gate. And he would not come. Now, what Jesus says to each one of us is different. We don't all have the same idolatry as that young man, but we all have it. We all want to squeeze our idols through the narrow gate. We all want to be like Rachel and bring the household idols with us and make them fit one way or another. We stuff them in our pockets, stuff them in our pack, fanny pack. I don't know if they had fanny packs back then, but we want to get them through the narrow gate. And Jesus is saying they will not fit. You must drop them. There's no hedging your bets when it comes to Christ. Coming to Christ means entrusting your whole self and your whole life to Jesus. It means upfront committing to believe his word above your own. It doesn't mean, well, I'll consider Jesus' words and then I'll consider my own opinion 
And then I'll consider others' opinions, and I'll decide what seems to be reasonable to me. It means committing up front that he is the Lord. He knows best. He speaks the truth. And it means the committing up front to set aside your own thoughts and set aside your own words at every turn and to receive his word instead. It means committing up front to follow his word, not to weigh his word with some other approach and decide what you want to do, but committing up front that you're going to do his word. Now, of course, we fall short. We fall short. And so Jesus never says perfection is required to get through the narrow gate. In fact, it's only sinners who go through the narrow gate. But we cannot bring our idolatry with us. We have to leave our former lives where we were the ones in charge behind us. Another thing about the narrow gate is this. You're in good company, but you must pass through by yourself. Your Christian family, children who have grown up in Christian families, your Christian family, your Christian friends, they can all be there and they all will be there calling out to you, encouraging you, walk through the gate, walk the narrow way, but you must go through by yourself. You must come to the point where you yourself trust Christ. You yourself believe You yourself say, Christ is Lord and Savior. I want to walk with him. I'm glad my family is here with me. I'm glad my friends are here with me. I'm glad my church is with me. I'm glad I'm walking the same path that millions of saints have walked down through history before me, and many will come after me. I am glad I am on that path where many come into the kingdom of God. But you yourself must believe. You must trust. And if you've been a Christian for a long time, if you've begun to take on the responsibilities of the Christian life, if you've married a believer, if you've started a family, if you've entered into a career as a believer, if you now have the weight and responsibilities of children, And the children grow up, they become teenagers, they get married, and then they have children. You have all these weights and responsibilities. It's real easy as we go through the Christian life to just begin to kind of be carried along because the other people that we're with, they are carried along too. You know, we're just here. It is important for us who have been on the Christian walk for some time to stop from time to time and to ask ourselves, am I simply being carried along? Do I believe Jesus today? Do I believe Jesus today? Am I following him in whatever I'm doing in my marriage, with my children, with my family, in my job? Am I actually following him? Or am I just being carried along? I don't know. uh, Sometimes I've, I've seen believers who have been believers for many decades Um, and married to a believing spouse for many, many decades. And then then, um, either the husband or the wife will pass away and go to be with the Lord. And then sometimes the one who remains just, just... They just go off. And their children are left there going, Mom, Dad, what... What are you doing? And you start seeing that it's very possible 
to allow all the responsibilities and the relationships that we build up as Christians to become kind of like hedges that, that keep us on the way. And hedges are good. We need hedges. There are times when we need hedges to, to keep us on the way. But we don't want the hedges to be the only thing that's keeping us on the way. We need to ask ourselves, do I believe in Jesus today? Am I trusting him today? Am I following him today? I walked through that narrow gate some time ago. Would I walk through it again today? It's a good way for us to think. And so we only go through that narrow gate one at a time. And finally, once you pass through the narrow gate, once you commit to Christ, you entrust yourself to him, you throw your life upon him, as it were, you have to understand that the way is difficult. Now, it's, the, the word actually means narrow. It means to be pressed in. It's like the sides begin to press in. So it can be narrow, but as, as the sides begin to press in, life can become difficult. Uh, as we see in Psalm 34, it says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Being righteous does not mean having no hardships. Being righteous doesn't mean never being tested. In fact, being righteous means being tested. What makes the difference is that the Lord delivers his children out of all the testings and afflictions. Now, one of the greatest difficulties of the difficult way is that it does not appear to us intuitively why the way must be difficult. We can understand, once we think about it, why the narrow gate needs to be narrow. But why must the way continue to be difficult? And that stumbled many an Israelite in the desert. It stumbled many a Christian in the 40 years of hardship between Pentecost and the destruction of Jerusalem. And it still stumbles many Christians today. Well, again, if the narrow gate is about getting disciples out of Egypt, the difficult way is about getting Egypt out of us. And that's why God sends us hardships and affliction. God doesn't send us hardships and affliction because he enjoys messing with us. He sends us hardships and trials and afflictions because he enjoys saving us. And saving us means a whole lot more than being forgiven. It means we're brought to know him. It means we're brought to be conformed to the character and the image of Christ himself. John, uh, this morning, read to us a passage from Deuteronomy 8, where God told the Israelites why he put them through the hardships in the desert. It was to humble them, to know what was in their hearts, to make them truly trust and, and love God, and to grow in their knowledge of God as their father. You can see the book of Exodus really under the theme of God taking a bride, and that's, that's who we are. We're the bride of Christ. God takes a bride and he calls her out of slavery. The book of Numbers is, uh, you could look at it this way. It's the honeymoon. And God takes his bride camping. That's, that's the book of Numbers. Because he knows his bride has had issues in the past. She's had faithfulness issues in the past. She's had adultery issues in the past. And he, he says, you know what we need now that we're married? We just need some time, just the two of us. Just the two of us. And so let's get away. You know, we're not going to Sandals or any of those big resorts that are advertised on TV. Um, let's go camping. Nobody there but the two of us. 
uh, she didn't turn out to like camping very much. Um, but God's whole point is, trust me. I am your focus. Trust me. I am with you. I will care for you. You know, C.S. Lewis said that uh, when he was a boy, he had a toothache one time. And he didn't want to tell his mom about his toothache. Because not only would she give him an aspirin, which is what he wanted. He wanted an aspirin. But the problem was she wasn't just going to give him an aspirin. She was going to take him to the dentist. And then the dentist was going to start not just looking at the tooth that was hurting, but start rummaging around in his mouth looking at all the other teeth that didn't hurt. And that's the way the Christian life is. Jesus is either going to fix us all the way or not at all. Or as Paul put it, God has predestined. He has decreed that we will be conformed to the image of his son. And so that is what uh, the difficult way is all about. There are many times of blessing and refreshment on the difficult way, but God is, as we walk that way, always going to tell us, you know, about the idol in our pocket. The one that we managed to get through the narrow gate. The one that we've been carrying for so long, we don't even notice it's there. And he's going to put his finger on it one day and say, The one in your pocket. Got to go. It's got to go. And uh, we have to give that up. And that's what the hardships are for. So I began by saying, imagine that things got so crazy here that following Christ came to me be called unchristian and unpatriotic, un-American. Well, I'm not making predictions because I don't know exactly what God's going to do. But I do know that what made these things so very hard for those living in the first century was the fact that it wasn't just a personal matter of personal hardships. It was a matter of national hardships and national crisis and crisis within the covenant people of God. And I will tell you this. It is not that far-fetched that we could face something very similar if God doesn't have mercy on our country. And what we need is a, is a vast and great revival with tens of millions of Americans coming to Christ. And that's only going to happen if we can show our fellow citizens, our fellow human beings out there, what it looks like to go through the narrow gate. What it looks like. What does life with Father look like through Christ? We need to show them that blessedness. We need to show them what faith looks like, what repentance looks like, because those aren't one-time things. So let's do all of this, taking Christ's words to heart. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.